0: This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park.
1: That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell.
0: Welcome to this week's episode of Cascade of History. I am Felix Bonnell. Well, we're back in the studio this week. Um, I want to thank everyone who came out last week to uh, Burgermaster here, not too far from the station, over at University Village. We heard the sort of the bad news from the owner of the company last week uh, as part of our interview on the show with Alex Jensen, who's the CEO of Burgermaster, that that location is officially closing down um they don't own the real estate and they're uh, they're sort of losing the losing the lease which has been month to month and that goes away probably at the end of February so it was uh, it was great to do the a live remote of this show on a Sunday night so many people came out it was nice seeing everyone just the customers buying their hamburgers and stuff there so anyway we're back in the studio for this week's episode We've got uh three guests we're going to speak to tonight we're going to be talking to Jason Matson in just a moment or two he's the executive director of the Lewis County Historical Museum they've recently taken uh Possession of some pretty cool artifacts related to one of the most iconic businesses in southwest Washington, and we'll talk to him about that. We're going to talk to Dan Everhart with the Idaho State Historical Society about a photo database project that's uh, getting underway over in the GEM state. And then we're going to go up to Anacortes in Skagit County to talk to Brett Lunsford who's with the Anacortes Museum up there. Um, a little bit of a holiday uh, flavor to this week's show, as next week as well, as will be our last two shows before we reach Christmas. I won't be doing a live show on Christmas night, um, which is a Sunday this year. But uh, Brett's going to tell us about this interesting connection between Anacortes, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Burl Ives. It's a, it's a terrific story, and they have some terrific artifacts at the museum there that... Um, he'll be talking about. Um, If you have any questions or show ideas, please send email to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. We're also asking people this week if there's there's holiday displays, light light displays in your neck of the woods anywhere in the Northwest, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. Um, We've done a pretty good job of talking about Candy Cane Lane. I think this will be the third episode in a row now where I've mentioned the phrase Candy Cane Lane, which is this uh, suburban street, uh, residential street that's been decorated every year since 1949. We had one of the neighbors on the show last week talking about that. But I know there's other places like Candy Cane Lane around the Northwest. I just don't know the specifics. And I'd love to be able to highlight some of those other, either, you know, neighborhood light displays or if there's uh, commercial light displays, a particular company puts up some particular kind of lighting. Um, we'd love to hear about that. And what would be the best thing to hear would be if someone could actually. Um, text me or email to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com a little voice memo two minutes or less just saying hey describing what it is why you like it if you know the history about it and we might play that on the air next week as part of our last show before christmas so anyway um it's cascade of history we're here for the next hour we are the only live radio show with news and stories about pacific northwest history all right i'm going to uh, welcome uh, jason Matson here let's see if i can get him on the phone here Jason, can you hear me? I can. Hi. Ah, Terrific. Thank you so much for joining us tonight on Cascade of History. You're the executive director of the Lewis County Historical Museum. That's right. Now, for people who haven't been there, where is Lewis County, and what is the Lewis County Historical Museum?
2: Uh, Lewis County, well, uh, Lewis County is kind of located uh, about 90 miles south of Seattle. Um, We're right in downtown Chehalis. Uh, housed in the old Northern Pacific Railroad Depot. Nice. Um, yeah,
0: that's great. And now, I, so, uh, and how long? How long have you been the director there?
2: Uh, just over five years.
0: Okay. Are, now, are you? Did you grow up in that area? Or did you move to that area for that job?
2: No, I grew up here, and so yeah, so I've uh, grown up, you know, learning all about local history, and that's terrific. Yeah,
0: a, yeah. And you know, I saw it was some photos I saw on social media a week or so ago that prompted me to reach out to you because. Um, Yardbirds is this incredible, iconic business in Southwest Washington in Chehalis Centralia area that's been there for a long time. But I last drove by the parking lot and saw the big signs there. Maybe must have been maybe last summer or the summer before last. I can't remember exactly. But for someone who doesn't know what Yardbirds is, can you sort of put that in context and tell us what what Yardbirds is?
2: Uh, sure. So it started out back in actually this is the 75th anniversary of its um, beginning. It started in '47 um so boyhood friends Bill jones and rich gillingham they started selling surplus out of a tent in centralia
3: <laughs> and
2: so from there they like they would buy huge lots from uh port Louis and sell it you know all over the west coast uh or all over washington and that business grew really fast they kept adding more and more to it uh you know automotive toys clothing etc and it turned into a giant, like, one-stop shopping center, um, like, way more before Walmart or Target or Fred Meyer, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, it was just kind of a local institution. Like, you know, if you didn't work there, you knew somebody who did, and, you know, everyone shopped there. Um, so it was just a huge part of our community. Um, like, Santa would fly in a helicopter every year, and... <laughs> um, <laughs> And they had these like super quirky like advertising gimmicks, um, like well yeah, like their mascot was a yard bird. It's like a little black bird with a yellow beak, and it always had you know doing goofy stuff, you know. And they had like a ad in almost every single newspaper, um, you know. And so, and the I'd say the funnest thing they ever did was they created these statues of yard birds that were ugly but quirky and fun <laughs> like you couldn't miss them now are and they basically oh go ahead i was gonna
0: say did they actually shut down are they out of business now
2: they are yeah so the store itself closed in 95 okay but the building kept going as like uh like flea markets and event space and independent little businesses inside so but now it's officially closed and so
0: um, yeah kind of sad i didn't realize this so the the business shut down in 1995, was it the same owners just sort of kept the building going or was, did different people take over the old building? Yeah, so,
2: let's see. So Bill Jones and Bridge Gillingham they they had it going up until like the late 70s and then they kind of uh, split ways. And then the Pay and Save Corporation purchased it.
3: Oh. And
2: they, yeah, and they kind of bought it for like the distribution. Um, <clears throat> and then there's like a lot of other small stores like the B&I in Tacoma, and um GI Joes and a bunch of other stuff that were around. They all kind of used the same distribution center that Garber started. Oh wow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was kind of a they had a big reach. What?
0: sound way car, ahead of their time. Day. They sound way ahead of time to figure out how to make retail sort of big box but still locally owned. That's pretty amazing.
2: It was. Yeah. No, they were they were real innovators in that regard.
0: And so. And, and so this actual yard bird, this giant yard bird that I saw you uh, saw being taken down or put in a truck or something, that, that belongs to the museum now?
2: It does, yeah. Um, that one, let's see, I believe it was probably graded like maybe in the 80s and it stood outside of the, uh, the old restaurant that was in the store. <laughs> and then for a long time it stood next to, next to one of the you know main roads here in town. Um, and then with the last Owner, they removed it, and one of the tenants inside kind of saved it from being demolished. Um And then they were nice enough to let the museum acquire it. And so, yeah, we've got a little project on our hands. It suffered some damage, but it'll be a, a fun restoration
4: project. So,
0: paint a picture. Describe what it looks like. Give me. Tell me how big it is. Tell me the materials. Give me kind of the whole like sort of a uh, uh, post mortem or a or a physical physical <laughs> exam for. A, a young, a young, healthy yardbird sign.
2: Oh, sure. So, so it's a, it's, it's a two-legged figure uh, <laughs> about nine feet tall, um, a big bulbous head, yellow beak, kind of large, cartoony eyes. Um, one hand is kind of in a strange way has three fingers. So, <laughs> <laughs> one, one sort of awkwardly pointing up. And out, like he's sort of waving, and then the other one's almost like in a grip. Um, okay. And but his body is very, um, how do you describe it? Kind of roughly made, but but so you can tell he's you know looks like a a figure. So like, like, like the yardbirds were very strange uh, amph- amphibomoric you know kind of creatures. Is it like yeah.
0: fiberglass or ferro cement and chicken wire or something, or what is it made out of?
2: Um, yes, all you know that, <laughs> like rebar on the inside, um, like a chicken wire mesh, like to kind of form the body. Huh. And then I think they put like a plaster of concrete over the chicken wire to, and then fiber blast over it. So it's a interesting, you know, bit of construction they did.
0: Boy, it sounds like the similar construction to the Winlock egg. <laughs> yeah, probably.
2: Yeah, it's probably
0: not too far off. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll have to talk about that in, a, in another episode. Now, do we know was there a? Um, do we know what year the actual yard bird design of that bird dates to, and do we know who the artist was who created it? Well,
2: let's see. So I I've seen like the earliest ad was like kind of a parody of Heckle and Jekyll.
0: Ah, okay, and.
2: And then that kind of trans or sort of evolved from. There's an artist named Binglore who did a lot of work around the area. Uh, he kind of created the standard yardbird look, and um, so he, he worked for yardbirds up until about the mm, probably early 70s. And and he also did like a lot of signs around town and worked for the fairgrounds. And um, just kind of a really kooky, great guy that you know I've heard nothing but great things about. Hmm. Um, so then he looked Yardbirds and then a fellow named Paul Downey started, uh, up in the advertising department and he kind of refined the look even more and gave the bird more of a, sort of more of a polished look, but still a lot of fun. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's a great thing.
0: Does, uh, no? does the
2: Yardbird,
0: does Yardbird have a name? No, I don't think so. Okay. I
2: think just Yardbirds. Yeah. There's been boy and girl Yardbirds and They've dressed up in all kinds of different things, and they've, you know, whatever suited them. <laughs> and,
0: and and that term Yardbird does is that as is, is, is that does that mean something? Is there something that that because there's a there's a blues band called the Yardbirds too, right? I mean that's a whole other whole nother direction. But does that word mean something that I'm not familiar with? Do we know what a Yardbird actually is?
2: Well, from what I understand, it's a uh, like an Air Force kind of slang term for somebody who isn't a pilot but would hang out in the <laughs> in the yard on the, you know, on the runway or whatnot. <laughs> um, and these guys, you know, you know, I think they had kind of a military background, so they probably just took the name as, a, you know, something fun. It originally was the two yardbirds, but then it, you know, eventually turned into just yardbirds.
0: Yeah, that's hilarious. Now, um, did I see other images of some other version of the yardbird, some long skinny thing that looked like a fuel tank or something?
2: Well, <laughs> there's one in town that... The big nesting bird, um, <laughs> its about 60 feet long, and 30 feet tall. <laughs> and that one was originally a helicopter hangar. Um, the owners had a, had their own helicopters, so they needed a unique place to store it. And so the tail feathers would open up, and the helicopter would land on its own special pad that was on tracks, and they'd roll it right in.
0: So, wow. Wow. No, so is that and, is that in the museum's collection, or what's the status of that structure that's
2: kind of up in the air right now it's still in front of the store um it's so big and probably hard to move i'm not sure what's gonna happen i'm i'm hoping mm-hmm. that you know somebody from the city or something we can do something to save it cause wow. they got a big restoration um uh, maybe about 10 years ago and but it's definitely worth you know keeping around
0: now, are there images or is there even any motion picture of that the, the act you described with a helicopter coming and going? Sounds like something out of a like a cartoon, even or, or something like a spy movie or something. Is there is there actually any any video footage or motion <laughs> picture footage of that that process taking place?
2: I've never seen any videos, but I've I've got some photos of the helicopter like coming in for a landing. Wow! And it on the pad. So, so yeah. But um, I wish there was video. That'd be great. Yeah.
0: Now I know different different parts of the region, you know, different uh, cities and c- communities have their own sort of unique stores that become you know local icons because they're there for so many decades. Is there is there anything specific, or special or unique or distinctive about Yardbirds that that just screams you know Chehalis or Centralia or Lewis County? I mean, is there something that's sort of unique to that region, or is this could could Yardbirds have been in Spokane or you know Yakima or Portland or I mean?
2: Well, hmm I I don't know. I mean I guess I grew up with it so it was just part of the community. Yeah. Um seeing it hearing the radio ads like um uh, <laughs> named Jerry Robertson who had like a really specific old grandpa ly voice, you know, go on the on the radio and you know, you hear the ads you know the a Yarbert ad. Yeah. And so and then, you know, just going to shop there all the time. They had like special deals, you know, like um uh, you know, really cheap Christmas presents. I bought my dad a hammer one year. I felt really excited about that. You know, I got it for a dollar, you know, and <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. So, and, you know, I'd go there and watch movies and uh, uh, buy comic books and toys. And, you know, I think I bought my first, you know, there and that kind of thing. So it's a lot of first. you know, just a, it was just a big community. Yeah. I don't know.
0: It sounds like a real community yeah. crossroads, like a real sort of like hard to replace all those functions. I mean, I get and I would guess that there's really nothing that's come even close to replacing what Yardbirds used to be.
2: Oh, not at all. No. I mean, it, its influence is, you know, still felt. I mean, I'll go to a 2nd hand shop and I like literally just bought a box of vintage ornaments that had a Yardbirds price tag on it. <laughs> you see that all the time around here.
0: So. <laughs> I, I love stuff like that. Now, what you said, you used you see movies there?
2: Yeah, there was a movie theater. Um, oh, wow. And, yeah, Cinema 3, and then there was a, a Twin City. Oh so, yeah, so they had, like, you know, a record shop and a comic book shop that a, a dance instructor you knew, and that was happening because you hear the, the tap dances, you know, from everywhere in the store. Hmm. Um their own grocery store, um, gas station, car wash, everything, yeah.
0: And so if you had to pick so. a year that, that Yardbirds sort of peaked in terms of being like this cultural community crossroads, um, doing big business, I mean, is there a – there must have been a year where it was sort of was at its zenith. Is that is that easy to point to, do you think?
2: Uh, well, it, that may have happened a little before my time, like yeah. when the current store opened, like – probably early seventies was a really good time for them because the store was new and fresh. They had like all the new features that they wanted, you know, Mm -hmm. to really make the store grandiose. Um, And then like during the eighties when PainSave save uh, took over, things got a little less, the spirit wasn't there as much. I mean, it's still there, but not quite as quirky. Um, And then when I was, Hanging out there mostly, like, in the early 90s is, you know, kind of still run down, but there was always, you know, just a good feel about it. Like, there's, I don't know, weird things like a giant barrel full of buttons in the fabric department and, you know, <laughs> weird old stuff that's been on the shelf for 10 years, but, you know, just me, so. Are,
0: are there any uh, either either online groups or physical groups that sort of, uh, I don't know, I guess like a support group for people who still really miss Yardbirds? <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, well, this uh, uh, local couple, Robin um, Robin Carmen Hugo, they put together a documentary about 10, 12 years ago and called Skinny and Fatty, the Story of the Yardbirds. Um, and they have a website called, uh, it's yardbirdhistory.com.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
2: And, so that's it, fun. It gives a good timeline of the events of the store. And, um, and then I run a Facebook page as the Yardbird but um, it's kind of an industry page. I'll just kind of feature, you know, fun stuff that, you know, I'll collect or find throughout the years. So.
0: so I don't know if you have a collecting committee or if you have to have a group a group of people who have to approve or um, or reject when you try to bring in big artifacts. But I imagine if there is a process like that, it was unanimous for this, this yard bird.
2: Yeah, I was a little hesitant to ask my board if they would want it. But uh, <laughs> no, everyone was in agreement. They They decided we needed that at the museum um because it's yeah such a big iconic part of our local history
0: now is is it on display now at the museum it is it's out in front
2: under our uh kind of portico area like in our fenced area okay um and it's yeah like i said it's it suffered a little damage but i'll be uh you know ending up working on restoring it here in the next few months
0: that's great that's really cool um and then when you think it ultimately will will Always live outside, or do you think he'll eventually be taken inside?
2: It, yeah, or, I think he'll, he'll stay outside. I mean, he's, I think it's kind of what he's meant for. He's always been outside, and yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll keep him under under cover so he's out of the rain and stuff. So. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, just do any touch up that needs to be done.
0: Now, with the holidays coming, you guys have a big author event next Saturday, I think. Did I read about that? Is that true?
2: That's true, yeah. Um, we've got... And I think 11 of local authors that are going to be at the museum from 2 to 4. Um, and folks can come in and you know, buy books from them, have them find and, and meet the authors. So it should be a really fun event.
0: That's great. And what's the museum website if people want to find out more information about visiting the Yardbird or coming to the big uh, book event next Saturday?
2: Oh, it's uh, org, And you can also find us on Facebook.
0: And and you're in Chehalis, not Centralia, correct?
2: That's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right downtown Chehalis.
0: And for people who don't know, what's the difference between Centralia and Chehalis? Help us understand that. Give us a quick version of what makes those cities different from each other.
2: Um, <laughs> well, they're awfully close together, but um, I'd say, well, Chehalis is the, the county seat. Ah, yes. So they've got a little more legislative, you know, dealings there. Um they're, well, they're very similar. I think Australia's a little bigger. Um, I don't think, it's funny. They're I grew up in Centralia, but yeah, there is a different feel to both. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of passionate people in both towns that care about the history of both. And um, so, I don't know. They're both very, they've both got some unique, fun stories to each of them. So, right on. Um, so uh, yeah, they're, like Centralia was founded by a freed slave ma- named George Washington, which you know many people may not know. And then, Shaila is uh, one of her; its early founders was actually a woman, and which you know back in the late 1800s was unheard of. So yeah,
0: yeah. Well, Jason Matson, uh, Executive Director of the Lewis County Historical Museum, thanks for being a guest on Cascade of History, and congratulations on taking possession of the Yardbird. And it sounds like it's in really good hands with someone who appreciates it, knows its value to the community, and it sounds like it's going to be part of the community for a long time to come. So thanks so much for joining us, and have a great holiday, and we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Appreciate it. Good night, Thank Jason. you. Thanks, Jason. So long. Bye. That is Jason Matson with the Lewis County Historical Museum. And coming up in just a few moments, we're going to talk to Dan Everhart with the Idaho State Historical Society about a photo database project those guys are working on. Um, before we get to that, though, I want to uh, play some old audio. I, I used to do a Christmas time show, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Christmas Eve into early Christmas morning show on uh, KBCS, which was the station out of Bellevue College over on the east side. This is back in the late 90s and early 2000s. I did a show called The Holiday Express, and it was on, you know, I do it once a year. Um, And I think I did it for four or five years, something like that, and I would collect all this different audio from people about their Christmas memories and kind of mix it with music and everything. So um, Pat O'Day, who's the late, great KJR DJ, I recorded him telling this story about how they had Santa Claus on the air on KJR. I think I recorded this back in 2000 or 2001.
4: To all the listeners of The Holiday Express, Hi, I'm Battle Day. I I thought I'd share this story at the Yule Tide season with you, because many of you grew up listening to KJR back in the 60s and the 70s, and you may remember at Christmas time that. The real Santa Claus was always on the air talking to the little boys and girls. People were fascinated that we would keep a Santa on duty all day. But what we actually did was we pre-recorded the conversations, and there was a whole set of tapes for little girls that called, and for little boys, and for younger boys and younger girls. And it was my fun to be Santa Claus, so now I'm going to give you a voice you may recall out of the past. Ho, 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 and hi there, little boy. This is the real Santa Claus. Have you been a good boy this year? Well, naturally, in the meantime, Mommy would have put the youngster on the phone, and the little boy would say, Yes? Oh, that's good, because Santa's looking forward to coming down your chimney with lots of wonderful presents this Christmas. So anyway, Santa would carry on this conversation. The little boy was actually talking to a tape, and every time the little boy would talk, then there'd be a pause, and the disc jockey would press the button, and old Santa would talk. So I thought you all, number one, might enjoy hearing how that was conducted, and number two... You might enjoy hearing again a very Merry Christmas to all you listeners of the Holiday Express from the
3: real Santa Claus.
1: That's the
0: Sonics on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM from Magnuson Park, historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station in Seattle. I'm Felix Benell. This is Cascade of History. We're here till 9 o'clock tonight, as we are every Sunday night. We're live, 8 to 9, the only live radio show about news and stories of Northwest history. And I love that Pato Day. I never grow tired of that Pato Day story about the real Santa Claus on KJR. Pat was a great guy, super helpful to me in all kinds of different projects over the years and sad that he's gone, but uh, a lot of great recordings exist of Pat. So um, we'll be playing some more Christmas stuff later in this show. and We'll play a lot more Christmas stuff next week and I might do, I'm contemplating doing a special Christmas show on tape for the Christmas night, the 25th, but we'll have more about that in the uh, days and weeks ahead. But I want to get to our next guest. That's um, Dan Everhart. Dan, can you hear me?
5: I can. Thank ah, ter- you.
0: Terrific. It's Dan Everhart from the um, Idaho State His- like State Historic Preservation Office of the Idaho State Historical Society. Have I got that right?
5: <laughs> you You have all the words right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right. Well, I reached out to you because I read something about a um, photo database project that you guys are working on for images and documents and all sorts of stuff related to gem state history. But before we get, get to that, um, let's talk a little bit about the Idaho State Historical Society and tell me, what you guys do there in uh, Idaho, where, where you're located, and what kinds of facilities you have.
5: Sure. The Idaho State Historical Society is headquartered in Boise, and uh, we're a state agency. That's not true in, in some of our sister states in the Northwest, but here in Idaho, the State Historical Society is a branch of government um, under the executive office. And uh, so State Historical Society manages uh, history and historic preservation-related um, programs and materials. Under our auspices are the Idaho State Museum, the State Archives, State Historic Site, and our own State Historic Preservation Office, where I work. Got it.
0: And do you guys, is the does the organization have a big collection of three-dimensional and, and then photographs and documents and that kind of thing?
5: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, thousands, hundreds of thousands of um You know, documents and and photographs in our in our state archives, you know, um, thousands upon thousands of of items in our in our state museum collection and uh, and beyond. So it is, um, you know, there's a there's a large role that we have to play in stewarding and curating, curating all that, uh, all that stuff.
0: Yeah. And we, you know, here in the Evergreen State, we feel a special affinity for Idaho because Idaho, you know, for 10 years there, Idaho was part of Washington and from like 1852 to, or 19, 1862, I think we, Idaho was Washington. So we still feel like you guys belong to the Evergreen State. There's sort of this, this, the borders kind of doesn't exist in our minds. So um, are, do, you, do you guys date to the 1890s? Is that when you were founded Something sometime back then, like a lot of historical societies? The
5: State Historical Society, uh, yeah, from, from, uh, from the eighteen, eighties actually, oh, and wow. okay. uh, yeah, and then and then created as a state agency in nineteen
0: o seven. Huh, interesting. And now, so this this database project that I that you and I traded uh, some emails about this isn't something that's happening this this week or tomorrow. This is some this sort of a longer range plan to get make material more accessible.
5: Right, and, 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 it, and it's specific to the State Historic Preservation Office. So, again, distinct from our state archives mm-hmm. or our state museum, we, we operate different programs in different um, parts of the agency, and the State Historic Preservation Office, where I work, has been taking on a, what we see as a long-term project to, um, to get a better handle on photographs, specifically. Photographs that were taken by employees and volunteers of the State Historic Preservation Office over the past 50, 60 years.
0: And, I mean, this might be a dumb question, but, you know, so many parts of the, like, the Seattle area and, like, the Portland area, the I-5 corridor, have seen such incredible growth in population in the last 10, 20, 30 years. And there's so much pressure on the built environment, and you see so many, you know, buildings that 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 you've seen your whole life all of a sudden are gone and are replaced with modern structures. Same kind of pressures in Boise or same kind of pressures in other parts of Idaho or what's it been like well, in Idaho?
5: Maybe you've not been reading the news on Boise, but uh, we are one of the the, the fastest growing uh, metropolitan areas in the country, one of the hottest real estate markets, and so you can imagine the pressure that puts on uh, on historic resources and uh, and that's not true just for Boise, it affects many of our our larger cities around the state, but Boise in particular Faces a you know a high, high pressure uh, of development,
0: and is is you know and depending on the city, depending on the part of the country, preservation can be a tougher or an easier sell to the general public or to the the, the people who are the builders or the people who make decisions about whether or not to restore particular buildings or you know renovate versus completely replace. Is is there is there a way to generalize or characterize kind of the preservation movement in in all of Idaho or in Boise in particular? Is it sort of is it a tough sell is it an easy sell? Does it sort of depend on the individual situation or what?
5: It certainly does depend on the easy uh, it depend on the on the on the particular situation. But I would say in in no part of Idaho is is historic of preservation and an easily, um, <laughs> argued concept. Yeah. Um, like most, like most of the West, private property rights are, are something that are, you know, sort of sacrosanct in, in the Jim state. And, and so for someone to suggest that the government or whether that be local or state or anywhere else, uh, tell an Idahoan what they may or may not do with their historic property, um, you know, can meet with pretty tough resistance. We do our best to combat that um, those those concerns by by having you know broad outreach about what exactly our programs do and do not do,
0: yeah, and so much of it seems like so much about preservation even even in you know Seattle, the liberal bubble that Seattle feels like so much of the time um it seems like it's there's so much great opportunity for persuasion and for storytelling and for incentivizing and kind of. I don't know. Not not making it feel like it's regulatory or punitive, but that but explaining how. I mean, you can't save everything, but if you preserve key elements of the built environment, it makes property values increase, and it makes the quality of life increase. And it's sort of, and it's it's this constant. It's not a. It's like a parade. You don't you don't just give the speech once. It's kind of this constant persuasion about why it's important to preserve these you know certain aspects of the built environment, so that. You know everything kind of fits together, and a place like Seattle or Boise or Portland continues to be a desirable place where people want to come and you know live and you know. But but the the pressure that can create that that can put the um, as the density incre- is increasing here in Seattle, um, and we're seeing in some of the, the the you know the single family type neighborhoods around Seattle where smaller houses that would have been kind of uh, perfect entry level houses a decade or two ago are now teardowns because you can put up a, you right. know, a building built built to the edge of the property line and three stories tall and, you know, 5,000 square feet or whatever. So it's, it's, uh, I, I've been involved in preservation in one way or another for about, oh, close to 30 years. And it definitely feels like it's, um, you know, social media and digital media has made it easier to, to spread the word about the positive aspects of it and to share things like photos and diagrams right. and plans and stuff. Um, but, it, yeah. and, and it feels like those sort of those, um, those people chaining themselves to bulldozer kinds of campaigns don't seem to happen as much as they, they seem to back in the seventies and eighties. Like it's become sort of more, um, it's more mainstream, I guess it's preservation is something that at least everyone knows what it is now. It's not like you have to educate people about it um, the way it seemed like you had to back in the seventies or early eighties or excuse me, eighties early nineties.
5: Yeah. I you were totally correct on that. I, I feel like we're, we're always educating folks about what historic preservation is and what it isn't, why it's important and, and how it can be used to better improve not just our, you know, our, our, our way of life as, as communities in the Pacific Northwest, but really the economies of our small towns and, and everything else. So there's there's still a lot to lot to educate about.
0: Yeah, are there particular success stories in Boise, either like uh, historic theaters or old schools that have been converted to residences or something like that, that, that you guys point to as kind of a kind of the poster child for really great preservation that does that kind of economic development and preservation of community and that sort of thing?
5: Yeah, one of our one of our more recent projects that we're particularly proud of has been got has gotten national attention is the conversion of a small uh, mid century gas station, a Phillips sixty six station. Converted into a small business uh, office for uh, an, an interior design firm, and uh, and it's uh, it's gotten a little bit of national recognition for its use of a small building um, and the National Historic Preservation Tax Credit program.
0: Now that sounds cool. So is it one of those like sort of tilt up yep. kind of like bolt together metal service stations from the 60s, or is it earlier than that, or?
5: No, it's from the, it's from the sixties. It's uh soap 66, uh, corporation came nice. out with a sort of standardized plan a, a bat wing, uh, <sighs> design and, uh, and it, you can see them all over the country, but the, but the particular example in Boise has been beautifully renovated and, uh, and the owners are very proud of it.
0: That sounds really cool. Now, this um, the photos and the the other parts of this database that you're working on. What's the rough timeline for for what you're trying to do, and what will it look like ideally when it's when it's all done or or mostly ready ready for public consumption?
5: Well, we're again we're we're taking um, basically um, photos from across the last let's call it six decades, and uh, we're we're digitizing them. And we're attaching data to them so that they can be better sorted and searched. And uh, and that time frame is probably um, going to you know continue past it's gone on for a year now. It'll continue into the next year and maybe even the year after that. Yeah. Um, we've got about thirty thousand images in the database at this moment, and we expect that number to climb past 40, maybe even reaching 50 by the time we're done. That's great. And if we're doing it right, we're just going to keep on adding to the to the collection. As we take more photos, as we travel the state and do our work, we'll keep on adding to this database.
0: That sounds great. That sounds like a really cool project. And um, where can people find out more information about uh, your organization? Is there What's the website address people should check?
5: History.idaho.gov, gov. Right History. Idaho. Gov is the website of the State Historical Society, and if you want to find um, examples of these images that we're digitizing and making accessible, you can find that on our social media, Facebook, which is just Idaho SHPO, or uh, or Instagram Idaho SHPO State Historic Preservation Office.
0: Terrific. Well, Dan Everhart with Idaho State Historical Society and the State Historic Preservation Office. Thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Hope we can have you back again sometime and get updates on the project and find out about other preservation projects in the Gem State.
5: Happy to talk to you. Thank you for the time. Hey,
0: got a special audio thing we're going to play for you on your way out. So, but have a good night. You can you can you can hang up and listen off the air. <laughs> Sounds great. Thank good, you. Good night. All right, I love old vintage audio, and I found this. uh, Boy, I think I got this from my old pal John Maynard a couple years ago. This is a little Idaho Power public service announcement from the 1950s with Ready Kilowatt.
3: You get more from life, you'll see when you
4: live better, electrically. Say, you look ready to bubble over. Been talking to Santa Claus? No, I've been talking to Ready Kilowatt. And what did Ready tell you? He didn't tell me. He asked me to ask you if you and I wouldn't tell all of the good people using Idaho Power Company electricity all across Snake River Valley that all of the folks from Idaho Power Company wish them the best of Merry Christmases. Yes, and a Happy New Year, too. Idaho Power folks say it's a pleasure to work and live in Snake River Valley. And to serve such good people. So here's wishing you a very Merry Christmas. And a happy and prosperous New Year. <laughs> Have a holly jolly Christmas It's the best time of the year I don't know if there'll be snow But have a cup of cheer Have a holly jolly Christmas And when you walk down the street Say hello to friends you know, And everyone you meet Ho, ho, the mistletoe Hung where you can see
3: Kiss you,
0: oh, that was the Idaho Power Company and then Burl Ives uh, with Holly Jolly Christmas. Idaho Power Company was with their public service announcement with Ready Kilowatt. Uh, it's Cascade of History. I'm Felix Bennell. We're here till nine o'clock. We're the only live radio show about Pacific Northwest history news and stories about heritage projects around Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. So far, we've been down in Lewis County, down in Chehalis, Centralia, and we were over in Boise uh, talking to Dan Everhart at the Idaho State Historical Society. And joining us next, and the the Burl Ives cut we played there was a little bit of foreshadowing because joining us now on the line is uh, Brett Lunsford, who's the director of the Anacortes Museum. Brett, can you hear me? Yes, I can feel it. Oh, I love that. When I press the button and I say, can you hear me? And the person (laughs) says they can hear me. It's so so nice the way that always works out. Thanks for staying up late on a Sunday night to talk to Uh, us on Cascade of History. My Uh, pleasure. I I love the Anacortes Museum. It's been a while since I've been up there. But uh, you guys have a really wonderful program there with the old old library where you have the exhibits and you have the W.T. Preston snagboat. Anacortes just in general is such a cool part of Skagit County. I just I, I envy what you guys do. You've got a great program. And you and I first talked about this story a couple years ago. Um, and I wanted to have you on the show tonight to talk about this this incredible connection between Anacortes, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Burl Ives. So what what's the deal with that?
6: Well, uh Anacortes was very excited when it learned the people of Anacortes learned that uh, Burl Ives and his wife Dorothy were moving to town in 1989. And that set in motion the uh, holiday tradition in front of the, the Ives' home on Oaks Avenue. That's the uh, road most people know as the route to the State Ferry. Oh, yeah. Um, where uh, an artist by the name of Eddie Strivens created a number of the characters from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and they were displayed on uh, what amounts to Highway 20 um, uh, for the public to see people driving to the San Juan Islands and uh, people in Anacortes, and uh, they just became a a Christmas tradition.
0: and do we know, like, if where Burl Ives Lives, if Burrow Lives lived someplace before Anacortis, which he obviously did, did he do that as well in another city, or did he only do this this activity in Anacortes?
6: Well, that's a question I don't know, and maybe one of his uh, grandkids, who you spoke with in your previous interview, yeah, yeah. Uh, Maggie or Samantha, might might have knowledge of that. And, um, my understanding was he split his time between the Bahamas and some of the Bahamas and Anacorda. <laughs>
0: it, it just seems like such a cool thing because that Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I think it dates to 1964. And so it was on, I think it was on, boy, it was on last night on uh, Channel 7 here in Seattle. I was flipping through the dial and saw it, came across it, and I was happy to see it on. And it, it's such a classic show. and. You know, I don't know what people expect, but the idea that one of the stars of it, Burl Ives, who plays Sam the Snowman in that show and kind of narrates it um, and sings Holly Jolly Christmas and everything, it seems like it would have been 50-50. I never met Burl Ives, but it seems like it could have easily been something that he would have turned his back on and never, you know, never acknowledged or never embraced or anything. But the fact that he, he actually, you know, commissioned these decorations and then, you know, put them up in front of his house every year and sort of I mean, he really—sounds he sounds like he really embraced that role. He really was—he was happy to have been Sam the Snowman.
6: Yeah, that's what—I uh, you know, read in the uh, article you did on My Northwest that you cited a quote from an interview where he said he watched it every year.
0: <laughs> I love and, that. <laughs> uh,
6: um, and it's—you know, the story itself is, is interesting in that it you know, began— uh, with a Robert Mays story in 1939. I, I've just been kind of uh, looking into it. My, my horoscope said I needed to do research uh, by the request of a friend today. And so I thought, well, Felix is my friend, and I'm, so I might as well research for this program. And uh, Robert Mays uh, writes this. He's an employee of Montgomery Ward and is aided by his daughter creating this, this verse story that in 1939 is the the book's a giveaway to customers of, of Montgomery Ward uh, department store and mail order and uh, then his his uh, brother-in-law Johnny Marks had it wrote the the song Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in 1949 and uh, pitched it to Gene Autry who's uh, didn't want to, didn't want to release it, but his wife Ida persuaded him to, and it, so it went out on as, as a B-side, and then became the second best-selling Christmas record ever. Wow! Um, awesome. And uh, she said she just thought that uh, that uh, story of an underdog would appeal to people.
0: Yeah, and and the the decorations that that Burl Ives and his wife commissioned. Those, after he passed away, they went away, but somehow the museum, you have them now, correct?
6: Yeah, so um, we have them on display. We have since 2017, there was a do- generous donation by the Ives estate to the Anacrotus Museum, and um, we, since that time, have made it our holiday exhibit where we put it up uh, for the entire month of December and encourage people to... Come in and um, take pictures, selfies with uh, the abominable snowman <laughs> or Bumble and all the other characters. Hermes, Yukon Cornelius, and um, and we loan them out to the library for story hour, and uh, and it's really well embraced by the uh, by the community and the, the traditions that had been formed. I think out in front of the eyes Ives' this house, uh, somewhat continued at the Anacortes Museum.
0: And what a perfect, you guys are the perfect organization to continue that tradition. Um, Now, you and I also talked a couple years ago about the um, Circus Drive-In Theater. Yes. Were you able to collect any artifacts from the circus?
6: Well, as a matter of fact, um, we had a conversation with the current owners, and they um, are at some point going to be taking down the remnants of the movie screen there and there's the one last letter. Um the letter R that's <laughs> hanging on the back and that letter R has been promised to the museum with um some of the perhaps some of the screen material the um and that so we can um create a, a nice display relating
0: to yeah, and, and for those who aren't familiar, I mean, this is on Highway 20. As you're approaching Anacortes, over on the right-hand side, there's this drive-in theater, I think dates to the late 1960s, that's been closed for many, many years. But the screen was still there. I think the building with the projection booth and everything was still there. The last time I drove past, I know there's some new development that's happening there, and then that eventually that's all going to go away. Uh, yeah, correct. It's
6: um, Now, I was uh, curious To know, Felix, if you have a uh, favorite character from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer.
0: Oh, boy. I think I like the Charlie in the Box (laughs) Uh (laughs) from the Island of Misfit Toys. That's such a strange sequence, that whole Island of Misfit Toys sequence. It feels almost, um, it's almost too harsh. I mean, it's sort of those days when, 1964, I think, was when that program first premiered. but. That, that the those sad toys on that island you know left there again and again you know to sit by the fire and cry you know the the pistol that shoots jelly and the little doll and the the uh choo-choo with square wheels but i like that charlie in the box i think he's he's got the most sort of uh i like his voice what <laughs> which which, which, which character is your favorite
6: well i've just watched it uh a couple of weeks ago, with my granddaughter, <laughs> and uh, you know, I've been watching it my whole life, <laughs> um, with some gaps here and there. Uh, but uh, it, it, uh, what fascinated me was the character uh, King Moonracer, who is the person, the 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 um, the winged lion, yeah, uh, who flies around every night looking for unloved toys to bring to the island of a toy and you know looking for a, a better life for them and uh that that character i just thought you know you know if i could wish that another of the um of the murals existed in our collection it would be for the uh king moon
0: racer oh yeah uh, character that could almost make its own if if uh if rudolph became like a marvel universe kind of thing moon racer could have his own program he could have his own show about how he flies around the world that's a very dark thing though they of an unloved toy being taken to an island somewhere that's there's it's it's pretty dark but that's the best the best stories like the most you know the most memorable stories that have the last most lasting impact always have a pretty dark part which is why a Christmas Carol is such a wonderful thing because it you know it ends with the redemption of Scrooge and everything's happy again. But he goes through some pretty some pretty dark parts of the story. And I guess the same is true with Rudolph. It's that it's that underdog. It's redemption. It's you know a happy ending and you know the the bumble having all his teeth pulled out, which is also kind of weird. It, there there some w- twisted elements to that story for sure.
6: I I would concur. And uh, I was kind of putting together a timeline as I often do with my research uh, and. Taking note that in 13 months between November of 1964 and and December of 1965, uh, three Christmas classics were were released. Uh, the first one, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians.
0: Oh and then yeah. Six, uh,
6: three weeks later, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and uh, then uh, in 1965, uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas, Wow uh, which uh, I. I watched again recently too, and speaking of just dismal, the, the you know the uh, hard luck tales of Charlie Brown. It's been a while since I had really spent time thinking about it and feeling it, and you know it's. Uh, but again, a tale of redemption through the after the persecution. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, and really good music. The music in that is, m- music and all. I don't know about the music in Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, but the music in uh, Rudolph and the music in Charlie Brown is just. I mean, that that's part of the reason I think those both those shows have such lasting, you know, such staying power, such durability. I do, I do sort of miss the point um, or miss the time when um, it would air. Each of those shows would air once a year. It would be on CBS. It would be like a like a Monday night at eight o'clock or something. And if you missed it you just missed it like there was no one had a VHS or a DVD that didn't exist yet i mean in, the, in my memory goes back goes back to the early 70s and it was it was true like you know special event television where you just you know you knew it was coming and you anticipated it and there were you know the dolly madison commercials on the charlie brown show and stuff and it's just it, it it really you paid really close attention because you knew you couldn't you didn't know you couldn't pause it but you couldn't pause it and you couldn't rewind it and you couldn't watch it anytime you want that was that was like a that was a different era of television appreciation in, in my memory.
6: For sure, yeah, <laughs> the, the on demand uh, digital revolution is um, <laughs> it, something we're still grappling with.
0: Yeah, it, it was also it was cool to know that like everyone in a certain time zone was watching that at the same time. There was that sort of shared community. Like the next day at school, you'd talk about it at recess or whatever. And and you know, five out of six kids or four out of five kids, some huge you know huge percentage of the of your peers at school had all seen the same thing at the same time. And that's, that just doesn't happen anymore unless it's like the Super Bowl or something. That's just, it just doesn't happen. So. Yeah.
6: Well, and, and, you know, you, um, I can probably, you know, ask you to queue up old, uh, radio shows right now from your archives and you could, could get that on in just a minute or two. Right. If I was to say that I noticed, uh, uh, that Burl Ives had, um, programs that aired on kvi throughout the 1940s
0: huh oh he, I, I didn't know that you did yeah i oh. was just
6: well washington digital newspapers an incredible resource uh is uh we've been putting a lot of the old Anacortes americans on there yeah but, yeah um, there's the seattle star and um, a lot of others uh, free and accessible um and i just did a burl eye search and noticed that his um, he was on the time schedule listings in the Seattle Star throughout the 1940s. And I just imagine my mom being a kid up here in Anacortes, uh, getting introduced to folk music by uh, Burl Ives singing on the radio. That's cool. I- I'm wondering if her neighbor, Harry Smith, who I did a book on last year, uh, if he had any opportunity to listen to Burl on the radio.
0: That's cool. I, I i was remembering I just remembering now that the last time might have been the last time I was, at, I was at the museum we did that I came and did that talk about radio history, and we listened to that that old disc I'd found that fifteen minutes called um evergreen Empire the episode focused on anticortis and recorded in about nineteen forty eight or nineteen forty nine or something so it it all it all comes full circle it's all about old audio, yeah, yeah, <laughs> all right well, Brett Lunsford, we're just about out of time here on cascade of history, but um give people the web address for information about the Anacortes Museum and if there are hours for or the best way to see the uh, the burl Ives uh, figures from from Rudolph Rednose reindeer
6: well a search for Anacortes Museum usually brings us up or you can go to usbm.cityofanacortes.org um we have facebook and uh, instagram um that you can find us on. And okay. uh, the museum hours, uh, if you were interested in coming in to visit these works of art uh, that depict the, the um, Rudolph characters, our hours are Tuesday through Sunday. Uh, well, I'll start by saying we're open Tuesday through Sunday, closed Mondays. And that uh, Tuesday through Saturday, we're open 10 to 4 and on Sunday, we're open 1 to 4 there at the,
0: right on. Uh, the Carnegie Gallery. All right,
6: Brett. Well, 1305 8th Street in beautiful Anacortes, Washington.
0: Wonderful. The the, the, the pearl of Skagit County. All right, uh, Brett Lunsford, director of the Anacortes Museum, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Thanks for staying up late on a Sunday night. We really appreciate it. And Merry Christmas, okay? Thanks for having me. Same to you. Talk, Bye. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. That's Brett Lunsford. He's the director of the Anacortes Museum, and you really have to see those Pearl Ives figurines. It's an amazing collection that they have, those artifacts. That, and the fact that Pearl Ives embraced that role, I think that's pretty cool. So, all right, well, we're just about to get out of here. Um, we will be back next Sunday night. We'll do another live show here on Cascade of History on Space 101.1 FM from Historic uh, Sandpoint Naval Air Station, now Magnuson Park, streaming at space101fm.org. Uh, You can reach us by email, cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. We love your show ideas, your questions. And we want to hear about your vintage holiday light displays all over the Pacific Northwest. Um, uh, You can tune in anytime you want to our podcast. We're at all the places where you typically get podcasts. We do post the show not long after the broadcast ends, but it's way more fun to listen to when it's live. So, All right, everybody. um, We will see you next Sunday night right here on Cascade of History.
1: That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it, that's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade. Of history. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bonell.